Well, welcome today. Uh, it's so great to see all of you here. I, I've been doing uh, workshops, affinity group network workshops for the refugee care uh, affinity network for the last four years. And this is double the attendance that we've had. And that just speaks to me that God is moving in hearts of people in our Foursquare family to be concerned about people that he's concerned with. My name is Joe Gaucher. I work for the National Church. I'm the Religious Worker Visa Coordinator, which means that anytime we want to bring a non-citizen pastor into the U.S. to serve in one of our churches, uh, I'm the guy that does the government paperwork. I'm also an immigration specialist in the legal department, and I uh, work with the Refugee Care Network. I've been involved in refugee resettlement efforts for 40 years. And uh, it's just been a blessing. God's used that for transformational ministry in my life. And again, I'm just thrilled that you're here today. I want to start us in prayer and uh, just ask that God would bless our time today. So please join me. Jesus, we love you so much. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, when you saw us and you recognized us and you spoke to us, we responded. And Lord, now you've given us the ministry of reconciliation as a partnership so that we can help others know that they're seen by you, they're known by you, and they're loved by you. We ask today that you would speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, and bring us knowledge and encouragement as we seek to serve refugees. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I want to start today just by giving you some definitions because people talk about refugees, people talk about asylum seekers, but in the last three years, it's safe to say that the words have gotten very confused and confusing. And in part, that's because people want you to be confused about what a refugee is and what an asylum seeker is. So refugees were first recognized in terms of international law at the end of World War II. There was a massive displacement of persons at the end of World War II, and in 1948, the newly formed UN passed a Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That Universal Declaration of Human Rights guaranteed that the nations that were party to the agreement would be concerned about and protect the security of individuals, that they would provide freedom from torture and other cruel and unusual treatments by their governments, and they would recognize and respect the right to privacy of individuals. In 1951, the United Nations went even further, and they passed a convention related to the status of refugees, and that's typically called the 1951 Convention. And that established universal law regarding who is a refugee, and how do uh, participating member states relate to refugees. That treaty was amended in 1967 by the protocols. And together, those uh, instruments of international law define a refugee as a person who, owing to well-founded fear of being persecuted, or for reasons of race, religion, nationality, or membership in a particular social group or of a political opinion 
is outside the country of his nationality. So when six million Syrians left Syria as a result of the civil war and went to Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan, they became refugees when they arrived in the country that they went to. That's called a country of first sanctuary. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between refugees and asylees because now we've had hundreds of thousands of people approaching or crossing our southern border seeking asylum. But what that really is, is they're seeking refugee status. If you come to the country of first sanctuary, uh, the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, will meet you there as they have established refugee camps, and they will uh, process you as a refugee seeking asylum in another country. People who get to the other country where they want permanent protection, those people are called asylees. But they are refugees, and they're covered by the 1951 Convention. And then, of course, we have migrants. One of the definitions of uh, a refugee, or one part of the definition of refugee, it does not include people who come seeking a better economic way of life. But it does, however, cover the category of people who in their home nations are not protected or uh, are not able to find protection from their government, either because the government is unwilling or unable to protect them. Uh, most of the migrants that we see who cross the border and who are accepted for a potential asylum hearing here in the U.S. have demonstrated to a border officer that they have a well-founded fear of being either persecuted or unprotected if they go back to their country. So an asylum seeker is somebody who gets to the country where they want protection, whereas a refugee is merely an individual who gets away from the source of the persecution. There are some other differences between asylees and refugees, particularly in the U.S. If you're a refugee in the U.S., if you've been resettled by the U.S. as a result of your uh, seeking uh, refugee status through the United Nations, then the U.S. has certain obligations to uh, assist you when you get to the U.S. The U.S. has none of those obligations regarding asylees. So in, in fact, the plight of asylees is often more difficult than the plight of refugees. But we wanted to give you that basic uh, information today. I want to give you two more statistics. Between 2016 and 2018, fiscal year, government fiscal year 2016 and 2018, the number of refugees resettled in the U.S. has decreased by 75% from 85,000 to 25,000. Through the first seven months of the fiscal year 2019, the number of refugees admitted to the U.S. is 14,808. So those numbers have gone way down. At the same time, I wanted to point out that this is part of what appears to be a concentrated attack in the whole area of immigration because legal migration in those same 2016 to 2018 years has decreased by 15%. And uh, so those are just some introductory statistics. That's the context. 
the legal context and that's also the context of what's happening in our culture. I want to introduce um, our uh, director, I guess, of unreached people groups. I don't know, specialist regarding unreached unre people groups in Foursquare Missions International. Uh, Rachel, if you would come, I, I know you wanted to, to share and uh, are going to share as well. This is Rachel Jackson. Jackson. Uh, she works with FMI and she's from Beaverton Foursquare. Thank you, Joe. Hey, uh, good afternoon. And for those of you that are here, continuing on in your workshop journey, I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is exciting. What you're going to hear from Andy and Donna today is extraordinary. The work they are doing is extraordinary because you're here because there's a mutual heart and, uh, and a desire to understand what do we talk about, a what do we mean when we talk about refugees? What is God's heart for people? What is God's heart for people groups? And so I represent uh, just an, a topic called unreached people groups. And what that means is that means there's 3 billion people globally that represent populations from Muslim backgrounds, Hindu backgrounds, Buddhist backgrounds, tribal backgrounds, and unreligious backgrounds that have no access to the gospel. And so what that means is that God has brought these people to our neighborhoods. God's brought the ends of the earth to our Jerusalem. Can you agree with me in that? That per, for so long where we have been a sending, uh, an ascending movement and we continue to send people, we also recognize God has brought the ends of the earth here. And so as we are faithful in our Jerusalems, as we are faithful in our Judeas, and we, as we are faithful in our Samarias, we recognize the opportunities that God has given us to, to reach people who have been inaccessible with the gospel in North Africa, Central Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, North Asia, populations where there's restrictions on the gospel, the accessibility of the gospel for, uh, for believers to come together like you and I, this, this convention, to come together and worship in the name of Jesus is prohibited in most of these places where there are unreached people groups. So when I consider the gathering of my fellowship with, with my fellow brothers and sisters, I also consider those that have little to no gospel witness amongst unreached people groups. So God's brought the nations here, and so there are 3 billion globally, over 47, or there's 7,000 unreached people groups globally, and hundreds here in the United States. So in my own context, I just recently moved to Portland. I just got in, uh, involved with a refugee organization, and they're faith-based. And so I've developed a friendship with uh, two Iraqi ladies. And so I was actually, just before I left to come to convention, I was invited over to break uh, the Ramadan fast with them. And it was a huge honor, and I've been praying, Lord, would you open up an opportunity for me to come to share a meal, to, to participate in the breaking of the fast. And I was supposed to go to my niece's choir concert that night, and she texted me that morning saying, Auntie Rachel, I'm so sorry, I'm so sick, I won't be at my concert. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. She's like, you could still go. And I'm like, why do I want to go to a concert if you're not singing? <laughs> But then two hours later, my new Iraqi friend texted me and she says, oh, would you be able to come to my house at 8.15 tonight? And I'm like, thank you, Lord. I had been praying. And so, and the Iraqis, can you, we can't get into Iraq with my passport. I can't get into Iraq with my passport to, to share the gospel, to share Jesus. But God's brought Iraqis into my community. 
He's brought, he's brought Nepalis into my communities. He's brought Hindu people into my community. And he's brought other people from other backgrounds that have no little to no access to the gospel. And so when I talk about unreached people groups, I'm talking about people who have little to no access to Jesus and that there are not enough people in their indigenous culture to share Jesus with them. And it's the difference between being unchurched and unreached. Unchurched, people have said no to Jesus. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. But unchurched people likely have Christian friends, right? I have non-Christian friends, and there's accessibility to the gospel because you and I can drive down our streets and our neighborhoods, and we can see churches dotted everywhere. But an Iraqi population in Portland isn't going to find a church in their heart language. Does that make sense? And so that's the distinction that we want to make between, oh, well, this group is an unreached people group. They may not be unreached, but they may be unchurched. And that there's accessibility for them. And God's heart is for the nations. And he has empowered you and I as followers of Jesus, as Jesus said, go and make disciples of the nations. In the Greek it says make disciples of ethne. So he's not just saying make disciples of the geopolitical nations. He's saying make disciples of all ethne. So that means the 17,000 ethno-linguistic people groups represented all around the world, the 7,000 unreached people groups that still need Jesus, he says, make disciples of all ethne. And so God's heart for the foreign, God's heart for the stranger, God's heart for refugees is that we would see Jesus and his name glorified and made known amongst all the nations, all ethne, and they would be able to worship and be gathered around the throne room. And so I'm going to turn it over to Andy and Don and give them the full time because what they're going to talk about is amazing and extraordinary work taking place in Denver. So I'll turn it over to you guys. So I'm Andy, and uh, I'm really pleased for this opportunity today to talk to you guys. Uh, we started a church in 2008. We planted it ourselves with the idea that it was going to be purposefully multi-ethnic. And it was really by accident <laughs> we stumbled into refugees. We thought, I thought, when we started the church, we we're going to target international students, uh, international professionals, and kind of bring them all together into a church context, because uh, that's really at the heart of what we, what we believe. But in the process, God had some surprises for us. The Bible is full of exhortations to care for and reach out to the refugees, sometimes in, in the scriptural, say, f strangers among us, the, the foreigners. And uh, in this picture here, we have a fellow named Mohammed and his wife, whose name I forgot. But uh, they are from Iraq, and we helped bring the wife into uh, the U.S. and uh, helped settle Mohammed and his brother when they first arrived, and then later their parents as they came. And the verse in the Bible I like to focus on, there's many of them, but thus says the, says the Lord. Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien. That's another phrase for refugees. The fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So this is uh, the work that has become the work of our church. And... Um, <coughs> 
I'd just like to share with the refugees who come, I say to them, whether they're Christian or not, most of our refugees are, have been non-Christian, either Hindu or Muslim background, we'll say to them, hey, did you know that Jesus was a refugee? And most people are like, what? That's not true. And then uh, just recite the story of Mary and Joseph fleeing uh, Bethlehem when Herod was out to get them. It's a story that has been repeated over and over and over again throughout history. And it's a story that many of the folks that we minister to today, they've experienced that very same thing in their lives. So at the beginning of our church back in 2008, um, we had this dream to bring people groups together in a, ref in a, in a church, not like I said before, exactly thinking they would be refugees. And the, perp the, the phrase that I like to say, I really believe this too from the bottom of my heart, we are better together. When we're together across cultural lines, there's a bond, there's a strength that comes to us um, that isn't the same uh, when we're just a mono-ethnic culture group. Uh, but it's also not an easy thing to do because there are differences of culture and differences of preference. And so this is what we've sought to do. And uh, the, the people uh, from the church we had come from, which was a suburban, pretty much all-white American church, uh, there were some there who, who heard our vision and decided to join up with us and encouraged us, and we were given some prophetic words about this is a good thing to do. So that's really helpful because sometimes the ministry can be pretty tough and resistant to what you're seeking, but when you connect up with some people who have a vision with you. It's just a beautiful thing. The Lord brought a team of about 15 multi-ethnic people to our team to pray with us. And I did this thing where I, I jumped on the light rail of Denver. We're from Denver, Colorado. Did I tell you that? Uh, I jumped onto the light rail, and I rode it everywhere the light rail ran and just prayed. And I'd get off on a, st a stop and pray and get back on and go. And I was just asking, Lord, where do you want us? And I felt something at a certain station uh, on the light rail. And I decided this is where God wants us to be in this neighborhood. So we began to prayer walk through that neighborhood. And I'm a strong believer in prayer walking. You pray with your eyes open and while you're walking, asking God to bring his presence into the place where you're praying. And actually, that was the muscle behind our church start. That's what brought the miracles that we needed to get this thing off the ground. Uh, it was through that that we met a pastor of a church who graciously allowed us to move into his building uh, to have services there. We're still there after 11 years. Um, it's also where uh, we, we got an encounter with some refugees. Accidental encounters that were God's plan for how we were going to start the church. Uh, he led us to people that we didn't even really know about. There were people who were uh, refugees, new refugees. I was just walking down the street one day, and I met this young couple, Krishna and Bagimaya, who are from, uh, originally from Bhutan, but refugees uh, who had fled Bhutan and were living in, in Nepal. 
and they were all being uh, moved to various countries around the world, and the U.S., I think, had opened up the doors for about 70,000 of them to come in back in 2008, and just walking down the street one day, met this little couple with their little baby, and they were so happy to find somebody who would actually talk to them, because they were just looking for that. Uh, friendliness is such a powerful tool to people. And so we, we met, they invited me to their home, and uh, of course started cooking food right away, and uh, nothing was happening until I ate the food, and then we formed this friendship. They found out I was a pastor, they said, oh, you have a church? I said, yeah. Uh, would you like to come? And so they said, yeah. Now, I had not planned to start the church at that time. Uh, I had a different plan. I was going to spend like a year of strategizing and, you know, training our core team and all that kind of stuff. So they said, can we come? Is it okay? And I said, yeah. So they came. Uh, and they brought two other guys with them. And that night, my I, I really didn't think they were going to come. Uh, that night, my plan was I was going to teach on how do you win a Hindu to Christ? These guys are all Hindus. And, uh, and so when they showed up, I thought, that's not appropriate. <laughs> so what I did uh, instead was I just uh, shared the gospel message. And uh, they were interested. They didn't commit anything, but they were interested. And they, at the end of the thing, they said, we really enjoyed ourselves. Can we come back? And I said, sure. <laughs> I didn't even have to ask. And then they said, you know, this was really nice for us. Would it be okay if we brought some friends? Go for it. So that was the beginning of our church. I, I decided, we decided, God's got a plan, and we're just going to go with that one rather than whatever I had strategized. So, um, we, we would do things like uh, ha hold festivals, invite all the internationals we, we knew to come along with the Americans that we had with us, and we would begin to form these, these, uh, these collective uh, together meetings. And now my wife, Donna, is going to come and share a little bit from her perspective. The next part. Yes, so it was so fun to have our new Hindu friends coming to church. Um, they came exponentially every week, <coughs> doubled or tripled, and we found ourselves face-to-face um, -face with people who did not know Jesus and did not know to sit, did not know to uh, listen during the sermon, that talked, that got a phone call and stood up and talked on the phone in their loudest voice during the sermon. Um, it, to all of us Americans, it was utter chaos. And to them, they were so happy to be there. And we started printing the scripture in Nepali. And the first time we handed it out, many of them were illiterate and didn't take it. But there was one lady, and we were full. Our church was full. And we had hardly any Christians. Um, we had one Christian Nepali lady who could translate. And we just hardly had any Christians. And she, during the whole sermon, read the scripture in her loudest voice in Nepali the whole time. And I was standing in the back going, okay, God, it's a double blessing. The <laughs> word is going in English, and it's going in Nepali. 
just make this a double blessing. And every week it was different. And um, I'm grateful for that because we still love those people. We still are with them, friends with them. Um, they're still Hindu, Hindu, a lot of them. But it's not done yet. So that's what we pray. When we started, um, we considered Denver our church. So what that means is anybody we met, no matter who they were, what race, what culture, what religion, they were part of our church. And we acted like they were part of our church. So whatever they needed, we tried to do for them. So um, that meant a lot of things that uh, took a lot of time, and we needed a lot of manpower for that. We ate a lot of food, a lot of food. Nepali donuts being one of those things. Um, it's called sel roti. There was every, every uh, family wanted us to come. There were some weeks I'd go, can I just get a hamburger? Can we go to McDonald's? I just needed a little American food. Um, but their hospitality is overwhelming. It's an honor for you to be in their home. And so we would be invited a lot and eat lots of different food. Um, we got lots of clothing opportunities to try on, to wear. Um, they would dress us up and take pictures with us to send back to their home countries. Um, yes, I, it, yes, I would just go. It doesn't matter that I just look silly. It's okay. Um, I, I now own a closet full of ethnic clothes. Um, I had to find American clothes to bring this time. Um, but jewelry and the gifts and their, their love for us, their connecting to us was worth more than any money or any time. Um, so we love that. And because then we had so many people coming Refugees don't drive. Like, many of them had never been in a car. Many of them had never turned on a light switch. They'd never ridden on a bus until they came. They left the refugee camp. They um, never cooked on a stove. There were so many things that they had never done that we got to help them do. But not driving caused a problem. I had a little... Um, little Toyota Echo, and I one night broke the record. Um, the clown car had seven Nepali men stuffed in my car, and I drove up, and I said, four, just four, you know, trying to be legal, just four, and they said, but mom, we want to hear about Jesus, and I said, okay, get in, get in, and then I said, I'm not driving till I pray. And so I prayed, and then every time those guys rode with me, if I didn't pray, they'd say, Mom, you didn't pray. You didn't pray. So God did a lot of things miraculously, like I didn't get any tickets um, for having too many people in my car. We did a lot of things that were illustrated sermons because even when it was translated into Nepali, it was so foreign to them. They had no biblical background, and so... Andy did um, the Ten Commandments, kind of, let's try to lay a groundwork here. And um, very illustrated to where he, um, when they were all ten done, he brought ten goblets from the dollar store. 
cost one dollar. And every time he would say the commandment, and he'd say, if you, you know, when you don't do this, you are breaking the commandment. And then he would throw it down on this tarp with a rock underneath of it and break it. And it was like, oh, like that was so powerful. They love that. But one man said, what a waste of money. He didn't get the, the heart of it. And he was so upset that we wasted $10 on that, on the glasses. We, um, within that year, we had Hindus come to Christ. And it was our joy to be able to baptize them. And we did it in April. It was freezing cold. Uh, but they were so happy to be able to be baptized in Jesus' name. And they became that first generation of Christians in the United States. There were so many felt needs, so many things that they needed. We, um, we started that first summer that they were there. We did a learning lab for the children because they'd been enrolled in school. They knew no English. And so during the summer, we did a two-week learning lab teaching English and Jesus to them every day for that two weeks just to help them stay connected. We had, it was an outreach, so it wasn't just the kids who came to our church. We picked up Muslim kids and Buddhist kids. There were so many new refugees, and it was an amazing time, and we do that every year. We've kind of switched from English because now all the kids, because there's so few refugees coming in now, we do a um, a sports, you can tell I'm not sports-minded. We did a sport, we do a sports camp now, and we um, have the kids come from all over Denver and tell them about Jesus and play a lot of sports together. We, um, those felt needs were learning English and tutoring. Um, we did sewing and knitting classes for some Libyans. And um, we had a clothing and supply closet because refugee services was so overwhelmed by all the refugees. They would get one pot and a few plates and a few blankets and not enough things for their families. And so we um, called on all our friends and all of my school coworkers, and they, people just donated things all the time so that the new people would have the things that they needed. We did school, school supply raisings. Andy mentioned we had festivals so that we could meet new people, so that we could... Um, talk with new people, invite them, see what their needs were, come and help them. We took so many people to the doctor that in almost every ER in Denver, they knew Andy by name. And if I would go in, they knew me, they maybe didn't know my name, but they would say, where's your husband? Because we took so many people to the ER because in the refugee camp, you went to the hospital if you had a cold. You went to the hospital if you were not feeling well. And so they did that. Um, then if we couldn't take them, they would call an ambulance and go by ambulance. And then they got the bill. So that stopped after they got those bills. Um, one funny story is I took a young woman to the ER, and she was telling the doctor what was wrong. And then I was translating and so the doctor goes, oh, you know Nepali? And I said, no, I'm translating her English for you. And so <laughs> that was part of what we had to do is, and Andy would say to 
especially one certain guy, he would go, are you speaking English or are you speaking Nepali? And the guy would go, English. And he'd say, slow down. I can't understand. <laughs> so we ta Andy taught people how to drive. We um, tried to help kids sign up for school because the refugee services couldn't do that. There were so many children with disabilities that they weren't getting signed up for school. And I'm a special ed teacher, and I was like, no, you are going to school. And would help set that up and get those kids in school. We helped with jobs. We helped with housing. Now it's changed a little bit because there are so many refugees here. When they come now, they usually can connect up with somebody who speaks their language, who knows. But there still is this felt need to connect with Americans and to have relationship with Americans. We started um, a youth group right away. And most of the kids who came were Hindu, some a few Christian, uh, Nepali kids. And the guy in our church that did the youth group was a super tall Nigerian guy. And his English was a little hard to understand. And so it was just amazing. They loved him. And he would go visit them. He'd spend the night there. He'd eat their food. He just, they loved him for so, uh, because he so loved them and accepted them. We did small groups and did prayer groups. We, um, we did Bible study. So even the Hindus would come. And they would come to Christ because they were learning the Bible for the first time. So there were lots and lots of things to do, lots of needs. And one of those needs um, was to help in trauma. And so Andy's going to tell a story about that. Some traumatic, very difficult things. And you don't ask a refugee, so what did you go through to come here? That's too invasive. But when they're ready to talk about it, you learn some amazing things, horrific things, but also you can be there to minister to them. There's this one woman who's a very bright and vivacious person, and I'd asked her about, you know, what was her life like. This is after I'd gotten to know her pretty well. And she told me that when she was a, a nine-year-old girl, uh, this is in the country of Rwanda, she in her home witnessed the slaughter of her entire family. Mother's fa mother, father, grandparents, all siblings, uncles and aunts. It was a big family. Every single person in the home was murdered by the, the opposing tribal group. And she hid in a, in a corner. I don't even know exactly where she was hiding. But she kept looking up at a picture of Jesus on the wall. And she heard that voice speak to her. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And she did. So she was not harmed in any way. They didn't touch her. And she survived that. Ended up in the refugee camp. Ended up uh, marrying another man, refugee, who had been beaten and uh, had a lame leg. And they eventually migrated. One thing about refugees, they'll often shipped from one country to another. And they were in Rwanda, then were moved to Ethiopia. 
were there for several years and then finally uh, located to Denver. Terrible trauma, and it's important to let people say what they need to say, I show the love and compassion of Jesus Christ, and then pray for them. And the refugees that we've met, whether they're Christian or not, are always happy to have us pray for them. And I seek all the opportunities I can. The Muslims uh, we meet with, that we gain uh, a certain amount of trust with, we pray for them, and they like our prayer. I remember one time the Libyans, uh, there was, you remember the trouble in Libya a few years ago, uh, there were s students who were in Denver going to Denver University, about 300 of them, and suddenly their, their country was collapsing. All the money that was keeping them supported was cut off, and they didn't know whether they'd be able to go back to Libya or not. They were freaking out. And so this one young family who lived about a quarter mile from our church, came to the church just looking for some help. We had met them before, and we were their friends. They knew we were uh, pastors in the church. They came over on a night, and uh, we just had a wonderful time of praying with them and ministering to them. And one of the beautiful things for me was we had a Sudanese family who was part of our church as well who had had to flee Sudan and their life had been uncertain for like 20 years. They didn't know what was going to happen. They got to minister, the Sudanese family, to these Libyan Muslims, these Christian Sudanese, got to minister to the, this is, this is so exciting for us. This is what we love to do in our church. So another real big struggle among the refugees is loneliness. They need people just to come and visit them because especially the elderly, they don't have people, neighbors close by. They don't have any skills to, to get around much. Uh, they, don't, they don't know the language of English. They, they, they um, struggle to connect with their friends uh, across the world. So they just get very lonely. There have been times where uh, I've gone into an, an apartment, and I can't talk to the people who are there, but I just sit there. And they're very happy with that. They d we just smile and nod, and I'll say my five Nepali or Congolese w uh, Swahili words, you know, and then we just uh, snicker, and then after about half an hour, I'll leave, and it was a good time, you know. Just have to be very comfortable with that kind of discomfort. Uh, but grandparents are usually pretty lonely. They're stuck taking care of the grandkids while the their sons and daughters go off to work, and they're just trying to survive the best way they can. So one of the best things that we can do as Americans is to help the refugees navigate the American systems. The paperwork of America is staggering. It'll choke you. And especially, even people who know English, I look at some of these forms and, and I'm like, how do you fill this thing out? You know, pages and pages of stuff, and I'm thinking, how's this refugee going to fill it out? They can't. So they need help. And so we, we try to help with those kind of things. Um, one of the important pieces of navigating, ministering, and helping refugees is to understand the different kinds of cultures we have in the world. And one there's one broad category. Um, there's this lovely book called... Um, 
It's, it's on hot climate cultures and cold climate cultures. It's wi written by a YWAM woman. It does an excellent job. I forget the name exactly of the book, but if you Google that, you'll find it. Um, she goes through the differences between the different climate cultures of the world. And most of our refugee families are people who come from collectivistic cultures. They're used to being around a lot of people, and they do not like to be alone. When we tell them, oh, yeah, um, my, my son just had a baby, and they're working on uh, getting him to stay in his own crib, in his own room, they just look at you like, what is wrong with you people? They think that is the cruelest thing ever to force a little child to be all alone. When a guest comes to their home to sleep, they think it's rude to let them have their own room. They try to plan for somebody to sleep in the room with you, which I prefer not to have personally, but I'm an American, so that's how I like it, and that's how we like it, but they think it's rude to force somebody to sleep alone in a room. We have all kinds of frustrations that come up from time to time. Uh, the classic one is lateness. When they say, oh yeah, I'm only five minutes away. What that really means is half an hour to 45 minutes. And you try to work with a group of people and help them do what they need to have done when they cannot be on time. You can become very frustrated. Um, the people in our church who've gotten the most angry and frustrated are good-hearted American people who wanted to help but could not tolerate the third world time issues and uh, just went ballistic on us and left, which, you know, it's okay. They had that experience and then they needed to move on. That's fine. Um, another uh, very interesting thing about working with refugees that you might find, see, we're a church and we really want to get people to church. So transportation is like our biggest issue. But for a, 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 a refugee, someone from Africa or Asia, when someone comes to their house to visit, that's far more important than church. So we might say to them, hey, if someone comes to visit you and it's time to go to church, why don't you just invite them to come along? It's not happening. <laughs> they, um, in fact, the Nepalis have this, this uh, phrase, my guest is my God. So they have this idea that a guest is supposed to be treated whatever the guest wants, the guest is going to get, and we've got to treat them with that kind of respect. Uh, we've had some struggles with the Christian uh, people from other cultures when it comes to the way we do things. Um, and um, how can I say this in a good way? Um, where their culture will trump the Bible. That I'm talking about Christians. Where they're uh, saying, well, that's not the way we do it. And you'll say, well, the, here's the guideline in the Bible. This is what the scripture says. They said, it does not matter. Um, it has to be our culture way. We get things like that a lot. And so as a church, what we've tried to do with those in our church is to lead into the, wha what does the scripture say? To try to guide along that way, show the scripture, read it out loud, and that becomes a help to them. But it's sometimes frustrating. 
Yes. Just wanted to draw your uh, attention to my favorite picture in the whole world. This was our first camp out with the kids, our children. And they, we roasted marshmallows, and we went swimming in a lake, and we went hiking. Everybody survived. Uh, the tall boy in the white T-shirt and blue shorts caught a fish midair. Um, that was, a, and, and we got it on camera. So it was a very fun time, and they were so happy to be able to go uh, do that. One other hard thing is language. And if you um, have talked with people from other countries whose English is fairly good but you still struggle, you can multiply that um, sometimes a hundred times if they come to the United States and have no English. And so it's typically the children who learn English first and they translate for you. And so we have to help... Um, families um, know that sometimes children can't be trusted. So one of our uh, fathers found out that his children were translating the notes home from the teacher uh, incorrectly. And he enrolled in English classes <laughs> three days a week so he could learn to read and speak English. So that is a huge need, just somebody to have conversation with, somebody to help them with their English and understanding things, reading things for them. Um, those are high values for them to have some help with. Even now, we have um, Sunday, our latest language faux pas was um, an Ethiopian lady who's, who's lived here many, many, many years, is not a refugee, was an asylee in early on, but she her English is great. She told a story to a new... Uh, refugee who's come in, been here six months, and her English is pretty good. So if I need translation, I go to those two people because I know that their English is going to help me uh, get my point across. And they had a conversation. And the Ethiopian lady said, oh, I dropped, I wrapped my phone in a napkin and I dropped it in the trash. And I don't know what else went on in that conversation. So then the Rwandan woman, who's been there six months, went to um, the man who kind of does all the trash and said, oh, Beth dropped her phone in the trash. It's wrapped in a napkin. So when all the trash was collected out of the church that we meet in and take it was taken to the dumpster, he went and he grabbed it all out of the dumpster and went through every single bag of trash looking for her phone. That was about 10 bags of trash. And he was very diligent. He was going to find that phone. And so his wife and I walked out, and I said, listen, has anybody connected with her husband to see, you know, if they found it already or anything? And so we called the husband, and he said, well, I didn't know she lost her phone. Let me see if I can find her and find out. So she had her phone. It was a story of the past day, the day before, that she had dropped her phone in the trash. Um, so it wasn't her phone. So language can be so tricky. So I gave a gift card to the guy who, <laughs> who dug through the trash to say, go get some dinner. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, language. Language can be quite um, a hard thing.
to overcome and to not make mistakes, not insult, or not to feel insulted by things people say in their English. We've had lots of heartbreaks and disappointments, and I think that's okay. Life, life has that. Um, we had, in the beginning, all those Nepalis, many of them were interested in Christ and came to Bible studies and were engaged and very interested. And then a relative would come, a mother, a father, an uncle, someone older, an older brother, and would say, no, you cannot come. You need to stop. You can't do that. You can't go to that Bible study. And little by little, we would see them go. Um, that was so hard. We still visited them. We would visit the whole family then. We would stop just visiting the young. They were younger, usually younger people. And we would try to go for the whole family. Those were really hard times to see them leave when we had developed such a good relationship with them. It's hard when people do come to Christ and then and are baptized and following Jesus and then for various reasons fall away. So we had a young woman who came. She, um, with her husband, she was a Hindu and she became pregnant. And her husband was having some mental health issues. So she and I were driving somewhere, and she said, Mom, I'm going to have an abortion. And I said, oh, talk to me more. Tell me why. And so it's my husband is sick. I need to work. I cannot have a child. Um, it's too hard. And so just I said, let's, let's keep talking. And I prayed with her. And over that time, I took her to a pregnancy center, and she got to see the baby, and I said, you have to tell your husband, and she said, no. I said, oh, you need to tell him. This is his child, and so she did tell him, and he was so happy, so they kept the baby, and she was maybe six months pregnant, and he did have mental health issues, and he committed suicide, and it was very hard. It was very hard to watch her walk through that. It was very hard to walk through that. We loved him. We loved her. And just to walk through that. And then all the gossip that went around the community about her. They blamed her. And so just walking through that sorrow upon sorrow with her. She um, had the baby. And he, that baby almost died. Um, she came home to live with us for a while so we could take care of her and the baby. She became our daughter, and we loved her so much. She did come to Christ. She did get baptized, and we just were so happy. She lived, she moved back into her own apartment and was around the, um, the Hindus again, but there were more Christians, and so she was having fellowship with them. Then we left to go to India and Nepal. And we're gone for three weeks. And when we came back, she had married a Hindu. And our hearts were broken, totally broken. He wouldn't let us see her. And it was a long time before we could have time with her and the baby. And we're fearing for him, the baby, 
because so many times the incoming parent, the step-parent, isn't always good to the child. Um, but eventually we worked back in. And I'm just happy to say now they moved to Ohio and they're in Denver right now waiting for us to come back so they can come visit us and so we can see their children. And so it's redemptive, but my heart still aches because she's a Hindu. And, um, but God knows, and we have to trust him in that every day. We had marriages between different castes and um, high caste and low caste in the Hindu religion is very powerful. And a high caste Hindu girl became a Christian and fell in love with a low caste Christian guy. And nothing had been said. Um, we secretly baptized her. Um, she was 18. And then her parents heard about them. Because in their culture, if you just say you like someone, that means you're going to get married. And so the parents were so angry and were going to ship her away. And Andy went to talk to them. And it was uh, tremendously difficult with language and the culture and just wanted to try to calm it down. Let's just calm down a little bit. And the family was so angry, they were spitting on her and hitting her. And Andy stepped in, and he got spit on and got hit. And just that whole emotional thing of you Christians are making my daughter marry a low caste person. And we did um, uh, take the young woman and place her in a home for a little while because we were worried for her safety. Um, they did get married. Uh, they have reconciled with her family. We've been to the family's home for dinner. Um, so God is moving in those kinds of ways, but such a heartbreak to see the family be um, broken apart like that for so long. <laughs> we have problems with parents supporting their kids to go to school. They don't go to school events. They're on the track team, and nobody goes to watch them run track. They have a concert, a band concert, but nobody goes. But we go if we can. We try to go and be there to support those kids, to encourage them in their educations. So those are hard things. Those are things we grieve over, but that's life. We grieve over lots of things in life because we're human. Um, but... I want to talk about the great things, the great things about refugees. One of the great things is their generosity. They are so generous. They might be so poor. When Andy first met the Nepali family, they had a little bit of food, and they made that little bit of food for him. And the only reason he knew they didn't have food is he walked to their kitchen and opened their cabinets to see what they had, and they had no other food. They are the most generous people on earth. They will give their last thing for you. We, after um, they, um, a huge quantity of refugees were here, that's when Ebola broke out. And in Africa, not here, not here, Ebola broke out in Africa. 
our refugees said, we need to do something. We need to do something. So they contacted, we contacted all the other churches of refugees, and we put on a concert for Ebola to raise money. They did that all themselves. They wanted to raise money. And we invited the um, churches to come whose families still lived in Liberia that, um, so that we could pray for them and hear reports. But so generous. When Nepal had the earthquake, we did a huge thing again with multiple churches to raise money for the Nepal, people in Nepal for the earthquake. When Pakistan had flooding, again, they wanted to raise money. And Andy was telling them about a friend of ours who had these collapsible tents, structures, and they were $400 each. And we said, could we send one? Could we raise enough money to give one to, to send to Pakistan? And so Andy said, let's pray. And so he was praying, and when he finished praying, there was a line all the way back of people lined up to put their money in the basket. And we were able to buy two tents. They didn't know we were going to collect money, but they gave. They gave. They probably gave all the money they had in their wallets because that's who they are. They're generous people. Refugees also give. When we think of refugees, and sometimes when I think of refugees too, I think of their needs. They have so much need. They have so much need. But they are also givers in different ways. One of our young men, um, early on, so he'd just gotten a job, and he was working with a coworker who was having, who was older, maybe 10 years older than him, maybe 15. And that man was experiencing trouble in his marriage. And he was, they were talking about it, an American guy. And they were talking about it. And this young man, um, he just told him about Jesus and how Jesus could help him. And he prayed for him. And the man was not a Christian. And just every day was encouraging him to stay, stay with his wife, um, be there. And that man came to Christ. And he stayed with his wife. And just last year, he came with um, our friend to church and gave a testimony about what God did through this young man. I feel like I see Jesus more. I know God more because I see these people from different cultures who understand Jesus in a different way. They see God differently. It's not wrong. It's different. It's another facet. If God was a diamond, it's just another facet that I can't see. And I know him more deeply because of them. We have had three church plants. They're mono-ethnic church plants, um, Nepali church plants. And that was hard. It wasn't necessarily something we wanted, but it was what they had a need for. Because we all have a need to speak our own language and worship in our own way. And so they, um, we have those three plant church plants. And in a way, um, we were known as the Nepali church. And then when they left, we thought, oh, there's just going to be, we're going to have nobody in our church. Nobody. And the next week, 
We had so many Africans in our church that we hadn't known. Like a new wave of refugees had come in, and they came to our church. Now we're known as the white church. We're full of Africans, but we're known as the white church. <laughs> um, but God just knew. Um, so we've shifted from Nepali to African. So remember I said we ate so much Nepali donuts, so, so much cell roti. And now we still eat lots of Nepali donuts, but we've added fufu to our diet, which is a very African food. So I think it's about time to come to a close and let you guys uh, answer some questions. We about have about a ha another half hour of material <laughs> left, but I just want to bring things to a close here and share that um, this is a wonderful opportunity to reach out to some people who haven't heard the gospel, but also to reach out to those who've been oppressed and abused and to give them some comfort and care and to build a help build a home for them. We are encouraging churches to do the same. Uh, our church is a mostly refugee church, but that doesn't have to be the way it goes in churches around the nation. It could just be a, an outreach, a ministry to refugees. Uh, one thing I do know, I'm so convinced about this, and I say it to myself almost every day. We are better together. I am better. As a, I'm a better person. I'm a better pastor because of the time I've spent with my refugee friends. Getting to see their perspective on life, getting to hear their struggles, and they want to know about my struggles too, which they don't think of as struggles really because of what they've been through, but they do want to hear about my life. And so we share life to life. And through that process, both of us, the refugee and myself, we are improved. We become better. Um, and it's because we're together. So I just want to encourage you, Foursquare Church people, uh, look for opportunities. Open eyes. There are ma most uh, major cities in the, in the U.S. will have a refugee center that can do work to, to help you get connected to refugees. Pray, prayer walk, hear God's heart, and go out. And I do want to say, take a chance. It's worth it. It is so worth it. What has God put in your hand to give to somebody else? It's more than you know, and it's just what they need. And we just need to come together. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Andy and Donna. And in a moment, we're going to entertain questions. But I want to talk to you about the Refugee Care Network, the Foursquare Refugee Care Network and Toolkit. At the foursquare.org website, if you search through resources, you will find um, the Refugee Care Toolkit. It's a group of resources online that has been put together by experts in the refugee resettlement area. It can help you connect with refugees in your community. And 
provide you access to information regarding resources to help you connect, not just with refugees, but with services for refugees in your community. The other thing that we do, we do a quarterly webinar um, through the Refugee Care Network. And on the sign-in sheet today, there was a place for you to check whether or not you wanted information about the webinar. But our last speaker was um, Pastor Peter Bonanno from the Northeast Atlantic Districts. He's a Northeast Atlantic District Supervisor. They're doing a, a tremendous work with uh, refugees and with immigrant churches. Next um, webinar is going to be in September, and that's with uh, Pastor Juan Vallejo from the Distrito Suroeste. Uh, who's going to be talking about uh, immigration and some of our Hispanic churches and also he's, I think, going to be addressing the asylum seekers. Um, I have some cards that I want to pass out. Uh, would you help pass those out, Rachel? These are cards um, for uh, resources. They're contact information for the leaders of the Refugee Care uh, Network, uh, Affinity Group Network. And so I want to just invite you to feel free to contact any of us if you have questions regarding um, serving refugee communities. Uh, and with that, I would like to ask if anyone has any questions that they would like to ask Andy and Donna regarding the amazing work that they've been doing in Denver. Uh, you've touched my heart. Anybody have a question you want to ask? Well, there's several things that we've tried to do to address that very same problem. Uh, one is we're always encouraging them to talk to their supervisors about getting Sunday off because being in worship is the most important thing to them, especially those who are Christians already. Right, <laughs> sure. And encouraging them to come on Sunday and to shift their schedule. I've, we've had some people who've actually changed their jobs so that they could have Sunday off. But the other thing is oftentimes in the week their day off would be Monday or Tuesday. Uh, what we've tried to do is as have some kind of home fellowship, small group for them on those days. And if we go, then that's kind of important to them and they'll see that as a very positive thing. So that's just a kind of temporary fix until they can rise up and get more uh, control over their schedule. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, I think that's great. Anything that we could do to have friendships build between a refugee and an American is a good thing because that, that relationship can become a platform to move into a better place for their life. Just along those lines, um, it's difficult to encourage members of your congregation to connect with people who are totally different than they are. And it's difficult for refugees to reach out and say, hey, I want to be your friend if they don't know how to speak a language. One of the things we're about to do in the church that I'm part of is on our Sunday morning hospitality, we're inviting people from other ethnicities to bring the treat. So the Syrian women are going to be bringing bak 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 baklava or Nepali donuts. And it becomes the opportunity for people in our congregation to interact with great idea. Uh, again, that food is 20 pounds, but it's 20 pounds well gained. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's true. We're scared. Go ahead. Yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what comes to my mind right away is uh, this amazing book that I read years ago by Henry Nouwen called The Wounded Healer of Jesus himself traumatized and wounded becomes the healer to others. And I think sitting in that space of recognizing I'm becoming a healing agent to this person who's telling me this most horrific story 
Um, as I absorb their pain, I'm, I'm healing them. And I think that in itself is a protection to those who, who and, and I think talking about it is critical. I also feel like talking about the experience afterwards, letting people just um, kind of download their stress is so important. Uh, for Just cross-cultural experience, we found whenever we take teams over, people have got to talk about it uh, right away uh, to kind of to debrief. Did you have something you wanted to say about it? And, and it is hard, and we as Christians know that we have to forgive, and that would be a hard thing, but praying for them, not even if you do it out loud, but just really praying, interceding for them that they could forgive and start that, that's the first pa- step of healing. Um, in our church, we have, uh, we actually have the warring tribes. This tribe has killed this tribe, and this tribe has killed this tribe. The Hutus. The Hutus. And they all are in our church. And one Sunday, one tribe went up, started singing. And actually, there's like three different kind of groups. They don't get along. And they one tribe went up and was singing. And then one at the time, they all went up. The all these women from all these tribes who fight. And they're learning to forgive. And it's been tension-filled at times, yes. Um, but now as I stand back and I see oh, this mama who said, no, they may not come in my home for prayer meeting. Toodles right up and gives them a hug and greets them. And is God's just melting that away, that forgiveness. So I, I, um, that's a hard place that you're walking into. Um, but listening and loving and praying, interceding for them is a good thing. Any other questions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think ministry with refugees is not a one-off. Let's go do a, this quick mission trip and, and come back, meaning in our neighborhoods, you know? Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. But staying staying in the saddle with a family here, in th- we can do that in the U.S. It can't do that overseas unless you go full time, you know. But uh, just staying in their life and winning trust over time critical, critical piece. Yeah, <laughs> gaining weight. It's a good weight, like <laughs> Joe said. Uh, we are about at the end of our scheduled time. Um, I am sure that Andy and Donna um, are willing to answer any other questions that you might have. And so I would encourage you to stay and ask those questions, or Rachel or I, or Bruce Primrose, who's been serving us today. Thank you, Bruce. Let's thank Andy and Donna for sharing today. I love your last question about uh, trauma because this conference is restored by Jesus. And it's such a fitting way to end our time today to realize that we are, even in this breakout session, thinking about Jesus the restorer and how he calls us to partner with him in restoring dignity and life 
to refugees who've been through some of life's roughest experiences. Again, I want to thank you for coming, and uh, I hope that you will join us in September. We'll be sending out an email regarding our webinar in September, and uh, I hope you'll be able to join us as we continue to partner together in how to serve refugees among us. So God bless you.